Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Patton. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we are going to continue our series talking about how best to manage civil cases, but we're going to deal sort of moving a little bit further in the process. We're going to talk about dispositive pretrial motions. Yeah, I think these are a good way to help uh, move your cases along. And some people who maybe don't come from a, a purely civil background Sometimes I think give these motions short shrift, and I'm just going to encourage you to spend a little bit more time with them, and we'll talk about that today. The first thing that I want to talk about with respect to um, moving your cases and these kinds of motions is Uniform Superior Court Rule 6.3 and the uh, requirement with regard to hearings. Wade, tell every, remind everybody what that says. You know, you talked about it in our prior episode that all motions and civil actions can be decided without oral hearing. The only exceptions is where a motion for summary judgment, where there's actually a request for an oral hearing, and uh, I guess a, a motion for new trial, but probably the JNOV, motion for judgment not, notwithstanding the verdict. But other than that, all those other motions that get filed, even things that aren't motions, they just get denominated as motions. You don't have to have an, a hearing. That's right. And, you know, quite frankly, you should consider very carefully whether you need a hearing before you before you have one. So let's talk about summary judgment because I've seemed to have gotten a lot of those lately and some of those, you know, 18, 20 page orders because of the, all the, the nuances in it. The main thing about a motion for summary judgment is they can be granted where there's no material issue of, or, or issue of material fact, excuse me, issue of material fact. That's right. Is that one of those things that, I mean, do you see a lot? So the phrase is no genuine issue of material fact. That's the fr- that's your that's your buzzword. No genuine issue of material fact. I do see them a lot. Um, I think it's becoming more common for people to use summary judgment motions to try to eliminate either all of a case or at least some issues in a case. Now, Tane, I don't get a lot of motions for partial summary judgment. I'll get motions for summary judgment, and and you and I talked about this offline before. If the case comes to you as a motion for summary judgment. But you realize during the process that motions for summary judgment should be granted as to this issue, but the case remains viable on some other issue. Can you grant a partial when the motion in front of you is a total? Absolutely, because the the purpose of the summary judgment motion is to address each and every issue. And so if you see that there is no genuine issue of material fact with respect to a particular issue and it can be decided on summary judgment, I would absolutely encourage you to carve that issue out and and issue an order for summary judgment on that issue. 91156D tells you what to do with respect to cases that are not fully adjudicated on a motion. Um, but essentially what you need to do is just identify the remaining facts in the case that may need to be decided. The reason that I, that I point out 91156D for you is that statutory section actually gives you the ability as the judge 
not to be the fact finder on summary judgment on those remaining issues, but to outline for the parties what you believe the disputed facts still are. And that's important because um, you've already issued a partial summary judgment motion that has eliminated any facts that could have been eliminated on, on summary judgment. But now you, with respect to the remaining facts, this statutory section allows you to identify what facts you believe still need to be developed and what facts you believe have already been established by the evidence. And that's huge because that can save a whole lot of time at trial. The hint that I give you with respect respect to um, summary judgment motions is once you're finished and once there are still uh, portions of the action that remain, issue a pretrial order that identify the facts that you as the trial judge believe have already been established or are not in dispute and the ones that you believe are. Now, Tane, a lot of times people will file a motion for summary judgment and but they don't really think they're filing motion for summary judgment. They'll, they'll send me this thing called a motion to dismiss and it'll have affidavits and it'll have all these other supporting documents. I know that the law says that if it's a motion to dismiss, it has to be decided on the pleadings. Right. And if you have outside the pleadings that converts it to a motion for summary judgment, that's right. Do you have to do that though? No. You as the judge, if it's denominated as a motion to dismiss, you have the ability to determine whether you're going to accept it as a motion for summary judgment and and treat it as a motion for summary judgment, or whether you're simply going to deny the motion to dismiss that was filed and allow the parties to refile a motion for summary judgment at a later time. And there's a good reason for that. The plaintiff may be in possession of all sorts of discovery or all sorts of material prior to discovery that would allow them to file a motion for summary judgment because you can file a motion for summary judgment within 30 days of filing the complaint. Wow. So they may be able to file one off the bat, denominating it as a motion to, you know, motion to dismiss certain defenses or something like that. Um, And then have the advantage of having all of that material that the other side doesn't have. So you may want to allow discovery to at least be completed or partially completed before you grant that or even take it up. All right. So that's summary judgment. That's motions to dismiss. What about a motion for judgment on the pleadings? Now we see these in domestic cases sometimes. I think I see a lot of these in um, debt collection matters. Yeah. Right. Where where the, the person's response is, look, I've been trying real hard. I got fired. I've been sick, whatever. And they just file a motion for judgment on the pleadings. Those don't require a hearing either, right? That's exactly right. And you you basically look at the pleadings, and if the pleadings essentially do not deny the essential elements of the claim, you can grant the motion for I guess you can you can grant the judgment. Yeah, the requirements under 911.12c, uh, which is the, the statute on motions for judgment on the pleadings, say the, that the requirements are, number one, the pleadings must be closed. In other words, the filings that are required to be made must must have already been mailed. You must have had a, a, a complaint, an answer, the, the basic pleadings. Secondly, they must not delay trial. It's just like a motion for summary judgment. Now, let me hold up. What if somebody doesn't file an answer? 
Is that is that you, you just consider that a motion for a default judgment instead of a motion for judgment on the pleadings? Yes. Okay, so that means that somebody's actually filed something, but its pleading is an admission, essentially. That's exactly. Okay, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, to no, interrupt. You're, no, that's fine. Uh, secondly, just like a motion for summary judgment, it cannot delay trial, so you can't file it as a delay tactic. Um, third, you must show a complete failure to state a claim or a defense affirmatively shown by the pleadings, like you said in a case in a debt collection case where they've they haven't said. I don't owe the debt. They've just said, I've had a really hard time being able to pay this debt. There's no defense that's been affirmatively shown by the pleadings. And so you could grant a a motion uh, for judgment on the pleadings. And then finally, the pleadings are construed in a light most favorable to the non-movement. I mean, that makes sense. You you look at the pleadings and see, well, okay, there kind of does look like there's a, a, a defense to this and I can't grant a motion for judgment on the pleadings. You know, Tane, last time we, we did a pretty extensive pro se divorce case conversation, and I don't know that we really discussed the next issue as much as we probably could have on that podcast, and that's a motion for a more definite statement. Now, usually it's a party telling the other party, I moved that that person have to give me a more definite statement so I'd know exactly what it is that I allegedly did wrong or what they're suing me about. Right. I think in talking offline, you told me that the judge can actually do that. Yeah, and I've used this um, particularly with respect to pro se um, complaints that I receive from time to time. For example, I've, I got a complaint one time that was over 100 pages long. It was hundreds of paragraphs long. It, it had a lot of words. <laughs> But I literally read through the entire complaint and had absolutely no idea what the person was asking. I mean, no, no idea of what kind of claim it was or why they were making it or what legal basis. And of course, pro se pleadings, we try to give some deference to them and try to construe them in a, in a favorable light. But in this case, I couldn't make out anything that, that resembled a claim. And remember, the requirement of the law is that everybody is supposed to give a short, plain statement of their claim, not every fact or theory that could be thrown in. So in those cases, you as the judge can order the party to, to, essentially reissue a complaint or pleading that is in conformity with what's required by the law, which is a sort a short, plain statement of their claim. Um, a motion for more definite state or, or a, a, an order for more definite <laughs> statement in that case. And, and what you should do in that order is tell them what the potential consequences will be if they do not follow your order. So it's not a dismiss. I mean, it, it, it's not an automatic dismissal. What you're saying to them is if you fail to follow this court's order, it could result in penalties, including a potential dismissal of your complaint, answer, whatever it might be. Now, Tane, when when we, we, we've gotten all of our pretrial stuff done, we've gotten now our potentially dispositive motions resolved. We talked earlier in a prior podcast episode that you would actually move it then to some sort of scheduling order. Exactly. Okay? Now, do you actually, let's say this case is asked for a jury trial, civil case asked for a jury trial. They've issued a pretrial order, mm-hmm. the consolidated pretrial order with the right. way too long, concise statement of facts, but <laughs> right. that's a whole other issue for right. a whole other day. Do you, do you require an in-person conference in advance of trial or can they just, if, if, if you've got a satisfactory pretrial order, we can, I'll see you on Monday morning, 
three weeks from now. Right. Well, remember, OCGA Section 911.16 requires a pretrial conference if one of the parties asks for it. So you have to have some version of a pretrial conference if they ask for it. What I will ask the parties is, is this something we need a hearing for, or, or are you satisfied with doing it by telephone conference? I will only do that if I think it's not a very complex case. If it's a complex case, having a face-to-face meeting with the attorneys is frequently very helpful to me in formulating a pretrial order. So I will normally, my normally end up being a face-to-face conference. They're usually very short um, because I want to go over not only things that are about their claims, I want to tell them just the basics of here's how you'll try a case in my courtroom. Here's the technology is sketchy and doesn't work all the time. You know, I, I need your, uh, I need your request to charge the jury, you know, five days in advance, just little quirks that I have about trying a case. But, you know, uh, back when we were trying cases, that would have been so nice if you'd have been, if you'd been told that by more judges, it was always just a crapshoot. It was always like, I have no idea. (laughs) No idea. (laughs) Right. Hope this works out. Well, don't forget that that with a uh, pretrial conference the there and the pretrial order, the purpose for that under the statute is simplification of the issues, uh, the necessity determining the necessi- necessity or desirability of amendment of the pleadings. I mean, you may you may say, hey, look, there's a problem with your pleadings here that can't be fixed before trial. Do you want to go forward with that? And if so, they may need to amend. Third, um, admissions of facts and document stipulations. I'm big on this. I'm big yeah. on I'm big on arm twisting about this. Quite frankly. Frankly, when we do the pretrial conference, I say to the lawyers, you need to have exchanged every exhibit that you plan to to put before the jury at trial and, and before me at trial. You need to have them labeled and numbered, um, and you need to give them to the other side because this isn't trial by ambush anymore. You're done with discovery. Everybody ought to have every document that's going to go into uh, evidence. And I also try to get them to admit or stipulate to facts that we don't need to bring witnesses to, to put in front of the jury. Um, fourth, limitation of experts. I don't have a lot of expert cases. It doesn't seem like in front of me, but where necessary, you can say, look, how about you have one expert and you have one, not you have four, and then you try to trump with five, you know, et cetera. Um, and then finally, any other matters that would aid disposition of the case. And you as the judge can talk to them about things that you think would be helpful to, to move the case along. Do you require insurance companies to bring an adjuster to your pretrial conference? I've never required that. Um, I know that some judges do, and I know some insurance companies are more difficult than others, but here's always my philosophy. If you want a jury trial in my courtroom and you can't settle the case, then you get a jury trial in my courtroom because you can't settle your case. And, you know, I trust the lawyers to apply the appropriate pressures by, you know, offers of judgment and those sorts of things to get us to that point. So when you get through, you've got a pretrial order. When they send you their consolidated pretrial order and their brief, concise statement of facts goes on for two or three pages and it talks about the points and the counterpoints and plaintiff contends and defendant contends, what do you what do you do in when that pretrial order skip that issue for a minute? What do you do when that pretrial order says plaintiff reserves the right to object to blah 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 blah? I don't allow that. Um, I don't allow ambiguous statements in the pretrial order. And what, by that, I mean this. 
you don't get to say my witnesses in trial will include all persons identified during discovery in this action. I've seen that. And here's what Judge Kell does when that comes in on the consolidated pretrial order. I draw a little line through that that particular number and I put my initials by it. And that means, nope, <laughs> those witnesses aren't going to testify if they've never been specifically identified. And then I will give the parties a notification that says you may specifically identify any additional witnesses within five days. Um, and put those on that because I require you to give the name of the witness and what they're going to testify about. We're again, we're not playing generally. Games here. Yeah, generally. Yeah, they don't have to say exactly. Just give me a one line. This person's going to talk about uh, financial loss of you know lost wages or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want to know, and and it's the same with documents that are supposed to be identified in the pretrial order. You don't just get to say any correspondence between the parties. Nope. You say letter on May 4th from plaintiff to defendant regarding blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, again, if they put those ambiguous statements in there about what they reserve the right to do, I, I just mark through them, and it's not part of their pretrial order. The big key about pretrial orders is that once it's entered, and it, when I say entered, I mean filed now. Right. It requires leave of court to amend. That's exactly right. And it controls the course, the subsequent course of the entire action. So if they leave something out of the pretrial order, it's not part of the action anymore. And I had a case uh, in the past where, for whatever reason, counsel for one of the parties simply would not file their portion of the proposed pretrial order. I gave them another date to file it. They still missed that deadline. Ultimately, they didn't file it at all. I simply entered the pretrial order, the proposed pretrial order that was submitted by the other party, and they lost all of their defenses that were previous that were had previously been part of the action. And it was stated. it was obstinance. It wasn't oversight. I think it was an issue of. I think it was a health issue or a uh-huh. or a drug issue or a, some kind of other issue that gotcha. that that had occurred, and so you know that got remedied down the line, but. Um, it, it was problematic. So, Tane, let me ask you this, and, and this is really not on the outline, but certificates of immediate review. People are occasionally, shockingly, not happy with my ruling. <laughs> that is surprising. And they file with me, in a civil case, not a criminal case generally, right. a certificate of immediate review. Right, under OCGA Section 5-7-2. The big key, what's the 10-day thing with this? Okay. The big key is that if someone asks you for a certificate of immediate review, first of all, they can file that essentially ex parte. They can just bring that rule to you. I'm sorry, that that request to you, and you can either sign it or not sign it. Because certificates of immediate review deal with matters that may be important to the case, but aren't matters that you can directly appeal automatically. And so because the deadline is a 10-day deadline, um, they have to get them they have to get them signed and filed within 10 days of the ruling that they want to appeal. So think about that. The only way to really do that is to bring that to you, get you to sign it and have it entered right away. So Tane, you verbally pronounce your judgment and and direct one of the attorneys to prepare the order. Right. That order's not entered until it's filed, correct? That's absolutely right. That starts your 10-day clock, not the hearing and your verbal pronouncement, but actually the entry of the order. The, the, the signing and filing of the order. So once the order is filed, the clock begins to tick. You have to sign and file the certificate of immediate review within the 10-day time period, or it is 
it is considered to be denied by operation of law. Okay. Folks, that's going to conclude our conversation on pretrial matters involving civil cases. We want to thank you for listening. Make sure you rate and review us if that's something that you can do on your listening app. This is Wade Patch. I'm Tane Kell. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.